Club, Richard Wilson. Thank you, Andres. Thank you, panelists. I'd like to invite up our next round of panelists to the stage now. This panel number two is going to be on real estate investment firm showcase, and it's going to allow you to hear from successful real estate investment firms, what's working right now in the marketplace, and lessons they've learned uh, over the long term. I just heard from Matthew on the last discussion panel talk about sometimes giving feedback to people saying that their management is bad but their idea is good. Um, it's great if you can get that type of candid feedback. It might not be nice to hear, but I think a lot of family offices are too busy to give that feedback. They're just going to archive their, your email if they say that, and it's not worth their time to be slightly insulting to you and give you that candid feedback, or they're too polite to say it and it's just not in their personality and they just, they're just uh, shy away from doing so. And that's part of the point of doing this discussion panel here today, is to get uh, insights here on what uh, these panelists have learned the hard way um, that can help save you time and make you more effective, because the reality is a lot of investors do not give us all uh, direct feedback. If we can uh, quiet it down at the table over here on the side and, qu and quiet it down here up front and make it a little bit easier for the panelists to get heard. Uh, SL, why don't we start with yourself and we'll uh, work our way down the line and just do a quick one or two minute introduction on your background, your focus, uh, just so for the rest of the panel we'll uh, know where you're coming from. Hi, I'm SL Vandersanden with Caprock in Chicago. Uh, we acquire, manage, and broker uh, e-commerce resistant uh, retail shopping centers for family offices and investors. Um, over the last, uh, my career, I've been involved with a little over two billion in assets. So real quick, um, I grew up in a poor community. I managed to get to college. I got it with a good degree, worked in public accounting as an auditor briefly, so I am a CPA. And then transferred to real estate, working with private equity, working on it with a family office, doing a turnaround. And, um, and then as an advisor to uh, institutions and non-for-profits and monetizing the real estate assets. Uh, what I've learned over the, particularly the last 11 years in my career is to look down first, look for why the deal might not work um, before you get excited about what could happen. And number two is because I was crushed in 1990 when I had my first firm at age 29. Um, that cycles happen. So I think long term. I don't, the chasing a three year deal that you're going to double your money may or may not work given the cycle and the timing of everything. So I think you got to take the long term perspective. Great. Thank you. Uh, Dan? All right. Who here wants 100 grand? Nice. Karen, you got it. All right. You got to stay for panels four and six this afternoon. I'll be giving that out. Uh, Dan Krasnowski, Rocket Dollar. More on that later here this morning representing Pinnacle Storage Properties. Uh, we own and operate 15 self-storage facilities across Texas, a little bit on the West Coast. Uh, we are entertaining commitments of a million dollars plus from family offices. Typical deal, we actually cash flow on day one, six to 10%, 20 to 30% IRR, and we expect to be acquired in two to three years. Great. Doug Burt, 29th Street Capital. Uh, we're a multifamily value add uh, owner and sponsor. We own about 9,000 multifamily units across the country. Uh, we're in about a dozen different markets from the West Coast down to Florida. I handle um, acquisitions and asset management here in Texas, Dallas, and Houston. 
Um, we also are in the student housing space. We own a couple thousand beds in San Marcos at Texas State University and um, uh, looking for, for family offices and, and high net worth groups to, to partner with. Great. Uh, Nick? Uh, yeah, Nick Westring uh, with uh, Westbo Capital. And so we're, uh, um, I guess, a family office of a sort. Uh, we do construction development and own and operate uh, multifamily and low-density residential. Uh, we're based in Western Canada. And, um, yeah, we are also just kind of moving into the space where we're uh, opening up uh, the office to outside investment for people who are looking for... Uh, yeah, diversification, and uh, and like what we're doing. So, yeah, this is a uh, honor to be able to be with you guys today. Great, thank you. Good, good morning. My name is Paul Marinelli. I'm the founder of Riverglades Family Offices in Naples, Florida. Uh, we're a boutique multifamily office uh, catering to families in the 25 to 100 million dollar range, providing comprehensive wealth management. But we also work with uh, the higher end of the spectrum of a handful of billion dollar families providing select services uh, or direct or private investment opportunities. Great, so we have a, a good combination of uh, real estate expertise here on the, ta on the table here today. So we have a self storage perspective, an office perspective, single family residential, it also does multifamily, construction experience, et cetera. And the whole point of the panel is to talk about what new ideas, hard, hard worn lessons you talked about making $100,000 later. I think in the Family Office Club, there's many, many ways we can help people save $100,000 through avoiding mistakes, better negotiating deals, family offices saving on fees, getting capital raised uh, done faster, et cetera. And it's not even worth saying at most meetings now that you have off-market deal flow. It's better off you just don't say that and you just describe why you find great deals because everybody seems to use the word or the people that use the word most really don't have off-market deal flow, it seems. So um, I want to talk about where your best deals do come from, though, um, so that those here in the room who have maybe closed 15 deals can close their next 15 a bit more fluidly or at a better quality level. So uh, why don't we have one or two of you uh, comment on that, of maybe an innovative strategy. Uh, we want to try to avoid on the whole discussion panel saying something that's um, either already been said on this panel or that's uh, just super basic, like uh, referrals. That doesn't really, you know, allow someone to take action on a new strategy, but something specific that is new to you guys or took a while to discover would be great to share with the audience, I think. Want to go first, Dan? Yeah, just a quick one. I think the pay-it-forward strategy in the storage space who we teamed up with, I'd say the first five to ten years of any career has been speaking on the association's panels, really getting to know folks. So we're at the stage now where through our vendors and banking relationships, we tend to hear of deals off-market, but we continue to give to educate the masses. And uh, you're laser focused, you know, Pinnacle with self-storage deals very specifically. Uh, obviously that helps with knowing what types of deals to send to you. How geographically dispersed are you with your investments and that paying it forward strategy? Sure. We're very fortunate uh, in Texas and we can probably stay in Texas. That said, we've been, uh, folks have reached out to us to say, uh, say if I have a smallish five unit uh, portfolio to manage. So we're looking at something on the West Coast, uh, another opportunity on the East Coast. Okay, great. Uh, SL, do you want to add something to that? Uh, I do a lot of the same, but um, it took us a long time to figure this out, is to have a staff that basically call owners. Um, we do manage and, and acquire and, and broker. So through that process, we find out about things 
before the market does, the, the, the larger brokerage firms. We still buy a lot from through brokerage firms, though, too. It, you, you just have to. Sure. And uh, how many people here have been to one of our capital raising workshops before? It's probably 30% of the room, probably. So uh, on the screen, sometimes we'll show a diagram showing holistic capital raising or holistic deal sourcing with like five different prongs coming out from a circle. And one of them that I, I, we talk about the least sometimes is operating within your business to give you superior knowledge and deal flow. And that's exactly what SL is talking about because they're doing brokerage in their exact niche. They're able to either cherry pick deals or have better data on what's an anomaly deal and be able to get better quality deals done as a result. Uh, anyone else want to comment on this question before I move on? I think uh, for us, um, the way we look at deals as well, uh, where we're willing to be more creative in our structuring uh, and more flexible, uh, can add a lot of value um, that um, maybe a, a typical person isn't going to see, but uh, just knowing the area that you're operating in and really trying to look for, for unique features in a particular property. Yeah, that's it. Time's out. <laughs> Spoke too long, I guess. Uh, so throughout the discussion panels, raise your hand if you have a question. We'll run a mic over to you. Just keep it uh, interactive. Uh, but we can move on uh, to the next uh, question here. What do you think is the number one thing that's made the biggest difference in your ability to close deals and get agreements in place and uh, really execute you know, in, within your real estate portfolio, either from the family office perspective or as a as sponsor? Um, for us, it's been we're, we're Freddie Max's like sponsors, so we get a little more attractive debt terms, so we can get a little more competitive uh, than someone that's not. Also, in the multifamily space, it's competitive everywhere, so the ability to put down hard money um, definitely helps us and separates us from competition. Right, because then uh, others aren't even if their bid is higher. If they don't have a history and a track record of closing when they say they're going to close, then they don't have credibility with that offer, I guess, right? We've won several deals where we were not the highest bidder. And part of that is because of our credibility. We've never never walked out on a deal that we put under contract before. Right. I know we had a sponsor on stage recently that said that um, while they might have come in first in the highest bid one or two times, they almost never do. They're usually second, third, fourth. But people know they close 100% of things they put under LOI, and that makes that makes all the difference. A lot of times there's a high flyer or the highest bidder is incredible and they're throwing out the highest price just to try and win a deal. And you know, a lot of times things don't always work out with them. Right, right. Makes if, sense. If I could jump in, uh, so when I look to deploy capital for some of my clients, uh, we're accessing, accessing it right now currently through sort of two different strategies. Um, one of those strategies is backed by a family office that has over 100 years of experience in, in Florida real estate. So to this question and a prior question, the deal flow, the how did they get to closing, they have a lot of reputational capital that you know, brings those things to the table that they can take advantage of, which uh, you know, certainly helps uh, their cause and that of my clients. The, the other end of the spectrum, the other strategy that we've been deploying capital is through uh, another family-backed uh, real estate venture with an individual who uh, is a little more opportunistic. They've not only done it in the U.S., but also globally. And uh, so they bring sort of their experience of having gone through several cycles, having operated in different geographic locations, those sorts of things, which, again, brings the deal flow, helps them close, uh, and ultimately benefits their investment performance. 
Sure. And in your guys' case, when you're looking at people who are reaching out to you, you know, you have existing relationships, existing managers you already like and have invested with, et cetera. For somebody new to break into that, how often are they uh, big, diversified real estate firms versus medium-sized but super laser-focused strategies? Or like, what's the type of firm that gets the attention of a family office like yours? It's not new being put together now. You know a lot of the players in the space. So what new emails and voicemails or an introduction at an event like this grabs your attention? So I think it started to come up in the last panel. The, the keeping it sort of simple, um, Richard, I know in some of your programs you talk about really refining your pitch. Mm -hmm. And I'd say refine that even more so that, you know, the, the first phone call is here's why I'm calling, here's what I do, here's how you benefit. Uh, and really, you know, not burying the lead. Same thing with emails. You know, sort of jump right to it. Don't, don't do the small talk. Don't do the anything because, you know, my incoming uh, call volume from people looking to raise capital and show me a deal, and you know, is, is endless. Um, so I'd really just cut to the chase, keep it succinct, and, and understand why you're putting it in front of me. The types of deals that typically stand out uh, at the higher end of the spectrum for a true single-family office are going to be those more differentiated, focused, niche types of things. But that does not mean that to a multifamily office where I've got clients with 25 million, um, that the more diversified, you know, uh, approach uh, doesn't, you know, it certainly fits for the right clients. Sure. Yeah, that makes sense. I, I often find my most valuable phone calls of the week are ones that last 7 to 12 minutes. And some of the ones that are less valuable uh, and less meaningful are the ones that drag on for the 30, 40, 45 minutes. It's kind of a reverse, reverse correlation, it seems. Um, so I want to go down the line now, maybe start with you again, SL, and maybe just share the one type of asset that you'd like to be allocating more to right now for each of your spaces. So if somebody here in the room has a family asset they've been holding on to for a few generations, they want to sell it, maybe they're in an investment and they need to get some liquidity on that investment, they'd like to bring someone in or, or get it off their balance sheet, uh, can each of you describe within just uh, one minute or less that that type of deal that you're looking for more than anything else so it, it would be a um, a well located property that um, that the the own, current owner is wants to move out of retail because there's a retail apocalypse if you read the papers and um, where there's uh, perceived more problems than than can be handled that I can look at and see the opportunity to, to uh, make some hay. And what, uh, what geography and what size would be the scope of that? So primarily central U.S. because we're looking at the less picked over market, uh, higher cap rates. Um, what was your other? Uh, and smallest and largest size. Oh, um, as small as say three to five million, um, as large as not, not you know, 50 let's say of, uh, let's say, a portfolio. Sure. Okay. Dan? Yeah, I think we want to stay in our sweet spot. So, what, so geographic uh, agnostic, although Texas is nice. Uh, anything that's five units works pretty well. I mean, we have managed 60 at a time, so we could bulk up pretty quickly. Uh, from a dollar range, I mean, an acquisition, we can go as small. We've done this where there's been two or three tiny properties on a main street in small town Texas and put them together for as small as uh, maybe four or five million up to, you know, in the tens of millions from a commitment and acquisition. Great, Doug. So we got our start as a company buying, you know, 60s, 70s, 80s vintage value add multifamily deals. 
Um, those have really run up in price over the past four or five years that we're selling out of those and upgrading our portfolio and buying late 90s, early 2000s vintage properties at about the same cap rates and getting the same returns. So that's really what we're targeting right now. I just bought a couple of those in Houston over the past six months. Have you guys uh, and also have you explored buying off of developers before it's fully leased up so they can get onto their next project and you help get it leased up and get a little bit of a something there that makes sense and it's a newer property. Have you guys done that before or seen that as something worth looking into? We have looked into it. Um, typically, if a developer wants to sell from what we've seen early, um, we don't really feel like we're getting as much of a discount as we would need to see. Right. They right. want to see it through, let it stabilize, bring it to market, and most of the equity and development deals wants to go that route. That being said, we actually just uh, we're launching a development arm to our company. We're building a three-phase uh, $160 million uh, multifamily deal out in Sacramento. It's in an opportunity zone. Okay, great. Uh, Nick? Uh, yeah, so for us, we're, um, we're pretty diversified in, in the size of deals. So we'll buy you know, a, a $200,000 single family home or we'll buy a $50 million uh, single property. Um, we're predominantly looking for uh, cash flow um, mostly just because of where we think we are in the market cycle and also specific to our geographic region, um, w what, uh, what we feel like we're, we're targeting. Um, and yeah, what was the other part? Uh, we're also a builder and developer, so we, uh, we'll build our own product or we'll, uh, we've uh, also in the past bought distressed developments and, uh, and brought them uh, forward in the right in the right market uh, conditions. So uh, a lot of that uh, flow can come from banks that we work with and different things like that. So sure. um, yeah, we're, we're pretty diversified in what, in what we will buy, uh, but we're very specific at the same time as to, uh, you know, we, we look at an awful lot of deals that we say no to. Sure, sure. And what about the uh, Riverglades family office? You hinted at some of the things you guys look for, but what's specifically of most interest right now? Yeah, so, uh, you know, the area for the family that's focused on Florida that they're focusing on is really senior housing, student housing. They're looking for something that should be, you know, consistent, uh, maybe a little bit defensive over the next few years. So going forward, that's sort of what they're looking at. Um, the, the other real estate fund that we're accessing is really nationwide. Um, it's looking at commercial retail. Uh, a lot of the big box stores that are shutting down, uh, they found great opportunities there. They've been able to uh, build a portfolio of several million square feet. And, you know, they've ostensibly been able to capture that at uh, the value or below the value of the land. Um, so those are some things. Well, I, I don't want to speak too much to the particular projects and what they're looking for. Happy to, to make introductions. Uh, but since I am here in Dallas coming from South Florida, uh, the Florida families, you know, very interested in learning more uh, about the Texas market, specifically Dallas, the southeast. So if anyone here, you know, is there, they'd, they'd love to maybe have a conversation, get to know the market, potentially, um, you know, partner on some deals uh, in the future. Great. Thank you. Um, if you'd like to raise your hand, if you have a question, we'll run a mic over to you um, at this time. Um, but I just want to make a quick comment. We've had a, a family that's spoken on stage in New York, and they've gotten two deals done. They're working on our third by, by stating this type of stuff on stage so it can what help get, helps get business done uh, within the room. And also I found there's some members of the Family Office Club 
that are informed. They come from institutional real estate. It takes them a long time to find a deal worth doing, but it's the first deal they're raising capital for on their own. Maybe they can only raise 20% of the LP equity needed, and then they're able to connect with someone like one of these individuals to co-GP the deal or have some sort of joint management of the deal, and they're both able to add it to their track record and get the deal done using the strengths that they're bringing to the table, whether that's due diligence or finding the LP investors, et cetera. So I hope some of that happens from what we just heard here on stage. Anyone have a, a question they'd like to ask one or more of the panelists here today? No, well, feel free to raise your hand if you do have one, uh, and then we'll, we'll call on you in just a couple minutes here. Um, what's the most expensive mistake that your firm or a firm you know has made in the marketplace that you could help others avoid here uh, today who maybe have just started their family office, maybe they're just starting to allocate to real estate, or they're only in deal four or five within their real estate investment firm? Anyone want to comment on that? So, uh, the biggest challenge uh, in acquiring real estate are transaction costs and what we call pursuit costs, the costs you spend before you know you're going to close. And uh, I it was totally out of my control, but the, the worst situation you're asked for $100,000 is like two fifty, eleven building portfolio, so you have all your cost times 11, and the, the lender retrades us for a 10% haircut the day before we go hard. So we had no time to recover, and that was gone. So watch it. <laughs> Right, great, thank you. Apps or, or, or just market disruptors? Yeah, great, excellent. Paul? So we're uh, definitely on the technology side, although uh, real estate's becoming an interesting asset class with roof is roofs now being uh, 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 an asset to generate electricity. But by and large, we're looking for technology that really helps to engage the consumer in a different way. The utility, uh, which is our major uh, investors and strategic partners, are uh, going from you know one touch point, which is not the most favorable because it's usually a bill, to multiple touch points. So we're looking for services to engage the consumer, be it a resident or uh, a company. You know, customer engagement, grid monetization, uh, the push towards microgrids for resiliency, uh, and, and so we don't have to transfer electricity across large spaces. Cybersecurity. We have a lot of IoT devices coming on. All of a sudden, your house, your uh, commercial facility is becoming a uh, generation. We want to make sure that uh, people are not hacking into that. So mission com critical communications, customer engagement, asset management, anything to make the delivery of these uh, photons to your house, to your business, a little bit more easy, and even monetize them in certain ways. Uh, you know, now people can monetize their assets. If it's a you know a 20 acre plot that you're carving out for a little microgrid, that that might be an interesting area for us. So uh, I will stop there before I uh, you go, go too far. No, go ahead, go ahead, Paul. Um, uh, yeah, more to say, and uh, I also had a follow-up question for you. No, go ahead with a follow-up. Uh, yeah, so for kind of the companies you guys are looking at now, you know, what would you say your due diligence process is like? What do you guys look out for in a management team? Great question. So we are looking for post-prototype, usually looking to scale. We don't have to see early revenues, but we do, do want to see a product uh, a little bit beyond the napkin. And uh, we are looking for uh, anywhere from minority to majority investments. If you look at kind of the cycle, some might say Series A, but the definition of Series A is, is vast. And largely what we're looking at doing is 
is silos and segments that we could do a roll-up strategy in. So we look at uh, unique classes within that customer engagement, within the IoT cybersecurity side, within the asset management side and planning side. Uh, did that did that get to it a little bit? No, absolutely. Okay. Yeah, he, yeah, you also just reminded me, on the tech side, we, we look at also technology related to real estate. So to the extent that it's technology that can enhance the sort of resident customer experience, uh, you know, sort of the, you know, uh, apps that make the the whole uh, living experience much more uh, for students and and for uh, residents in apartments uh, more efficient. Uh, we look at that kind of technology too. You know, this is the exciting part of our industry. Now we have devices like Sense that can listen to your home, that know what's happening, and and help change patterns. So yeah, definitely some synergies there in what we're both looking at. Uh, we're we're agnostic. Uh, when I say that you know we're heavily energy uh, exposed, uh, that's true. But we also have a series of other funds, uh, some venture funds. Um, just kind of give you a couple examples here. We, um, I read every email that comes across my desk myself. Uh, it's not it's not previewed by anybody else. It's not previewed by my assistants. It's not previewed by you know an analyst. I read it myself. I'll take a look at it. You know, and I'll if somebody wants a phone call, I'll take the phone call. Um, and, and, and by that, it, it's opened the opportunity, and, and that is a firm-wide policy that, that I have instilled. Everybody at my firm uh, is to answer the phone and is to respond to an email, period. Um, and that has allowed us some, what would, we, we, what would normally be otherwise uh, opportunities we would have never even considered investing in, one of which was uh, we just did a, uh, a, a th I think a $500,000 investment in a um, artificial intelligence, natural learning s stuff that's way above my head. Um, and uh, they just, uh, last week, they just placed number four on SQUAD, which is Stanford's question answering, which now means we're putting in 50 million. So we would have never done that had, you know, um, one of my guys uh, uh, at the firm opening the email, taking the call, taking the meeting, learning a little bit about it, and actually understanding that, yeah, this isn't our wheelhouse, but you know, maybe we can find some hired bodies to determine whether or not this can fit in our wheelhouse. Uh, alongside that, we're doing, uh, we partnered up with um, uh, uh, the real estate folks in this group, will probably remember his name, but uh, Dick Fold, uh, former uh, CEO and uh, chairman of Lehman Brothers, we partnered with him on his credit fund and his leasing fund. So again, we're getting in territories that we've never been in before. We've never been in leasing before. We've never been in credit before. Um, so outside of energy, you know, I'll take a look at anything. Uh, if it makes sense, you know, we'll talk. Excellent. So I kind of want to go on, uh, ask a little more about that AI company. Uh, so it was brought to your desk by someone on your team. Uh, they said it should be considered. And then what was the due diligence process like after that? Well, first thing, I think it's important. <laughs> the worst investment I ever made, and this is, this is a precursor, the worst investment I ever made is attending TCU for two years because it was two years and it was four hours of credit um, and $100,000 later. Uh, so that should tell you my, uh, I, I rely heavily on uh, uh, the minds of others around me to help me make my decisions. Um, so to answer your question, uh, I knew nothing about artificial intelligence. I knew nothing about the, you know, understanding natural language and universal la natural language. Uh, but what we did do is uh, the gentleman that brought it to me, um, uh, Ben, uh, said we need to take a serious look at this. And we have connections all across the country, all across the globe, and we had one that um, uh, was uh, runs part of Caltech's laboratory, um, their intelligence laboratory. 
and brought it to him and uh, had him vet it out. And literally within 15 days, we had, a, we had an agreement. Wow, excellent. And that's, I'm, I'm glad you shared that because many times when I have conversations with a lot of our members, um, they, you know, the big focus is have these investors invested in XYZ before. And many times my answer, because of panels like this, is I have these panels and I see where many investors are open to looking at new ideas, new technologies, new concepts, if it's presented to them in a tactful, professional way. Um, like this company must have approached you, right? Because I'm assuming, like you said, you look at everything, but many times maybe the approach isn't all there for you to take it to that next step. Yeah, I, I, don't I, don't, I don't recall ever getting an email that said, hey, I have a really bad investment for you to take a look at. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> you know, so, yeah, it, it, does, take, it does take time. And, and you know, I, I guess my advice towards uh, those that do, you know, reach out uh, out of the blue is just to try to obviously find a connection if you can. Um, if you can't, then keep it simple. Um, uh, you know, just, just here's my idea, um, and here's what I'm looking for. Here's what I, here's the problem I think it solves. Here's the problem, and uh, that generally uh, opens the door, at least for people like me. And I'm an oddball, so I may be the, uh, the odd one out here, but it works for me. Great. No, but I, I would agree with that uh, completely. Especially, I mean, my big advice would be to, you know, get your ducks in, in a row. I mean. On the real estate side, on tech side, you know, every, every, again, everyone thinks they've got the greatest investment. You know, everyone thinks their child is the most beautiful child and shows you their photos. And so you need to, you know, what I would stress is have some people, you know, make your pitch and have people evaluate it for you before you actually go to the investors to make the pitch. So at least then you're, you're prepared because the worst thing to happen, and it's happened, well, as I'm sure have encountered it, when you start asking intelligent questions if you've got some knowledge in the field or, or, or you get assistance from people who have knowledge in the field, you know, the not well thought out ideas start to fall apart. And if you're more, th if you're well thought out, the more well thought out you are, the more likely you'll, you know, pique our interest and, you know, get further interest in activity. Excellent. Paul? You, you know, you raised an interesting point. Uh, you know, w when I first started looking at deals in 2000, and I thought everything looked so great. It's like, oh, this looks good. This looks good. So I knew I was going to suck at this industry. <laughs> and it, what was funny is after a, a few hard lessons, you, you, you get to look at the investments in a, very, in a very interesting way. I mean, we focus on digitalization, decarbonization, and democratization, you know, really empowering the consumer. But what I look at is how much have they invested in themselves? You know, you can tell a lot by the person just by looking at that. And there's so many different technologies out there. I don't think anything hasn't already been invented. But does that team have the power to do that? Is your gut telling you, hey, 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 hold on here? So, I, you know, it's, no matter how much we still look at the technology, and I've been on the AI and ML side, and I forgot about power storage, and I'm just like, man, I really don't understand this. But when it comes back to it, you know, look at the human. Look at how much they've invested in their own well-being. And sometimes we have uncomfortable conversations for, I guess, for the other party where we say, great idea, bad management. Yeah. And, you know, and sometimes they take the advice of, okay, they'll step aside, and sometimes they don't, and, you know, the results speak for themselves. But uh, sometimes if you, you know, if you hear those words, <laughs> uh, it's not because uh, someone's just trying to, you know, stop you down. It's because, you know... <laughs> They generally believe that it's bad management, and probably is. And Chris, if you could elaborate a little bit on your due diligence process, what you look out for, what puts a red flag up for you, and what puts a green flag up for you. Yep. Um, 
I've been a generalist for a long time, and I'm starting to become more and more narrowly focused on a couple things. Um, just trying to get really, really good at two things or three things. Um, and I would just say, and I tell my team this all the time, um, if you're going to be in the investment world and, and your goal is to go 100 for 100, uh, chances are, well, one, that will never happen. But two, um, you will learn a lot more from the ones that you fail on than the ones that you succeed on. And so um, while I think being a generalist has made me a little more focused and it, it continues to teach you something all the time, I don't know if that means I will focus on the same two things for the rest of my life, but I, I really am cognizant of trying to keep maybe two, three max kind of big themes in my head and just get as good as I can at those, meet all the right people in those fields, um, and have our team kind of have a North Star that they know what they're marching towards. Great, thank you. Um, and so for our members, as you, if you don't already know, just remember you can always submit your pitch decks, your one-pagers directly to our team for Richard to review and give you about a three to five page report outlining where you think some improvements can be made. Those have been very hi highly beneficial to a lot of um, our members. Um, you know, for an example, somebody sent us a pitch deck, their one-liner, you know, their value proposition is that they provide value to their clients by really taking care of them. Um, and so every company's position should be to provide value. Um, so it's not so unique. So it's really working on developing, you know, what makes you different, what, once again, what problem are you solving and what, and how are you solving it more efficiently than all your competitors raising capital around you. Uh, so I think I have time for one or two questions maybe from our audience. So uh, does anybody have a question they'd like to ask one of our panelists? Right here in the front, Jock. There's a mic right behind you, Jacques. We, uh, we're a multifamily development group, and we've been blessed to uh, go vertical in several cities within uh, Texas. We're currently going vertical in uh, Fort Worth. And working with City of Fort Worth for permitting and for variances and everything has been great. They've been a great city to work with. However, we have comparable product in other states, and we find that uh, because of the tax code and multifamily, we take a significant hit at, at time of liquidation here in Texas that we don't experience in other states. That's actually even reducing our appetite to want to continue to do uh, more vertical deals here in Texas. What do you know about uh, the state's awareness of their uh, negative impact on taxes on multifamily developers, and are we missing something or is it uh, we have a comparable deal to the one we're building here uh, on the Trinity River uh, in uh, Florida in Navarre Florida and uh, same product about the same level of invest investment um, and it's about a 25% hit difference on our liquidation in Texas as it is in uh, Florida so we, we're wondering are, are we missing something is there something that you guys know that we don't know or is it that's just the way it is in Texas you're not missing anything um, there is a lot of legislation going on at the state level uh, to reduce property taxes. You look at properties in downtown Austin where the tax rate as part of the triple nets is 18 to 22 bucks a foot of the triple net. I mean, it's getting, it's more, you're paying more in taxes now than you were in your rental rate 10 years ago. I don't have a solution. Um, I know it's heavily being talked about. I know Fort Worth try and, tries to knock it down a penny or two every year, but um, yeah, I wish it could be better, to be honest. Yeah, 
we don't we don't do ground up development in Texas, but um, you know we we know developers who do, and yeah, it, it I've heard of those issues, and it is a problem, and and you know I know you know I hire more tax people in Texas to contest assessments yeah. and other things than I do in you know other states. I don't do that, and so there's definitely is issues on that. Uh, I s for us, at least, you know, sort of the positives still out outweigh the negatives. I mean, we're, we're still doing well, and, and yeah, you got to pay some taxes. But <laughs> I know. would add that Texas is a non-disclosure state, so at all costs that you can keep your information private, highly encouraged to do so. It's not always the easiest thing to do. Um, I know the appraisal districts have a team that are seeking out that information, but it is something we talk about in our office. We religiously try and keep anything with a price on it uh, secretive, mainly for that reason. Fantastic. And I'll take one more question here in the front. I just want a little more clarification. So are you speaking solely to property taxes? Property taxes, there's no other uh, multifamily problem that you guys see to take a hit on other than property tax? C correct. That, All right. So I did want to get another question maybe on the technology uh, or renewable energy side, uh, but our time is.